0: 2 Peter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever.
1: Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks very much Stephen. Uh, my name is Daniel if I haven't met you before. Uh, I've just started here as one of the assistant pastors it's my pleasure to uh, bring God's word to you this evening. Um, I'm excited about this passage, this, this book of Esther that we'll be looking at. I'm also excited because next week we're starting Ephesians. We're going to be doing, um, I think, about a 12-week series on Ephesians. Probably my favorite book of the Bible. I'm looking forward to it. hope you are too. But Esther is also exciting. Uh, it's a great story. Uh, can I get a show of hands of who's kind of familiar with Esther, sort of? Not not that many of us, because it's a quirky story, Uh, but it's a great one. I really encourage you to go home and read it. Um, Esther has something to say to us when we feel like God's absent. Not that he doesn't exist, just that he's sort of stepped out of our lives for a while. Other things seem to be uh, taking his place and being in control. It has something to say to us if we feel like the Christian life is just a bit, well, boring. Esther reminds us that even when God seems absent, He's actually at work. He's at work in all the chances and coincidences and moments of our lives, and He's at work in those things to deliver us, rescue us. And as well as that, He invites us to be involved in His work of delivering. So you know where we're going tonight. Um, we're going to spend a, quite a while just working through the story of Esther. I'm going to ask you to grab the Bibles in your pews, because we're going to read a fair bit of Esther. Um, Esther begins on page 354, 354, if you would mind turning that up. Um, And our second Bible reading will actually be part of that that part of the talk. Then second, we're going to actually uh, try to zoom out a bit and think about God's story and how Esther fits into God's story. And then finally, we'll come back to Esther's story once again. But I'm going to lead us in prayer as we begin. Please pray with me. Once again, Father, we want to thank you that you are a loving God, um, a God who longs to bring us into fellowship with yourself and see us uh, walk rightly in this world. We pray, please, that you would use this time to stimulate us to wholesome thinking, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be glory both now and forever. Amen. Well, it's the 6th century before Jesus and uh, no one's in any doubt as to who's in charge of the doghouse. It's uh, King Xerxes. He is king over the mighty Persian Empire. And Xerxes decides to put on an expo, a Persian expo. Um, I went to Expo 88 up in Brisbane and uh, took about three hours to see all the cool things. Check out chapter 1, verse 4. For a full... 180 days Xerxes displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Uh, Susa is the capital city. Uh, It's the seat of Xerxes' power. And it's the place where our story takes place. So our story takes place at the very heart of the power of the mighty Persian Empire. We know who's in charge. Now on the seventh day of that feast, uh, verse 10 tells us that Xerxes is in high spirits from the wine. Uh, He's tanked. And he summons his queen Vashti to come. Uh, He wants to show her off as well, as well as everything else. But verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Can't imagine why. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. How dare she disobey me, the king? Well, at the advice of his wise men, uh, King Xerxes decides to banish Queen Vashti and start the search for a new queen. And in his uh, opulent style, which we've become accustomed to, Um, he holds a government-sanctioned, empire-wide beauty contest. Uh, And it is ridiculous. Uh, Every entrant gets a maid. They all get put on a diet of some kind. Um, Atkins, back in the Bronze Age or something, I'm not sure. And they all have a 12-month beauty spa before they can even come before the king. It's over the top. It's ridiculous. And this is where Esther enters the story. We meet Esther, who's a a Jewish orphan, uh, who's been brought up by her older cousin Mordecai. And chapter 2, verse 7 tells us that she's lovely in form and features. She's a bit of a looker. So she's taken to the palace to be part of this big beauty contest. It sounds like she's a pretty charming lady as well, and she wins people over pretty easily. And after her 12-month spa, finally it's Esther's turn. And the king, well, he falls for her like a sack of potatoes. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. But then we get this uh, slightly random intrusion into our story. If you look at the top of the next column, you'll see this title, Mordecai Uncovers a Conspiracy. So Esther's Esther's, uh, cousin Mordecai is uh, standing by the king's gate when he overhears these two officers whispering. It turns out they're conspiring to kill the king. So like a good citizen, he goes and tells the king. He dobs on them. Um, Mordecai doesn't get any reward at the time, but uh, his deed is written down in the king's uh, book. Now, after that random interruption, we meet our final character, Haman, Boo-Hiss. He is the baddie in our story. Haman uh, is basically second in charge of Persia, and he hates Mordecai, Esther's cousin. They've got this tribal thing going back ever since the days of Moses, really. Um, And to make matters worse, Mordecai will not bow to Haman. He won't honor him. And this is actually where the tension point uh, is in the book. This is where the tension begins. Uh, Everything up until now has just been sort of introductory, setting the scene, but this is where the tension begins. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 5. We'll see what transpires. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And that's a pretty big kingdom, friends. That kingdom takes in Judah, Jerusalem, most of the known world. So Haman wants to wipe out pretty well all of God's people. So he and his cronies hatch their plan. They begin by selecting a date when they're going to uh, bring this genocide about. And they do that by casting lots. A bit superstitious, you know, just let the lots decide. Sort of like rolling the dice. Letting chance decide. And the lots were called the Purim. A bit strange, but that'll be important later. The lots were called the Purim. And when they've got the date, Haman goes to the king with this kind of lame story about why they need to get rid of the Jews and why it's actually in the king's best interests. And the king basically says, yeah, sure, whatever. Go for it, Haman. Enjoy. So that's the plan. Let's turn the page. Chapter 3, verse 13. Verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And this is actually where our reading fits in. Paul's going to bring that reading to us. It begins at chapter 4, verse 1.
2: Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. And then Esther summoned Hatha, one of the king's eunuchs, and assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman, who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a raw position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. On the third day, Esther put on her raw robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting at the, at, on his royal throne in the in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king and together with Haman come today to a banquet. I've prepared for him.
1: Thanks, Paul. And friends, that's the turning point in the book. Um, With this single act of courage, deliverance is set in motion. It's kind of like knocking over the first domino in the line. She steps up and she speaks up, and deliverance comes. The first thing that happens is she holds this banquet for three. And at that banquet, she simply says, Would you please come to another banquet tomorrow? I'll tell you what my request is then, says Esther. So Haman heads home from that first banquet, and he's pretty chuffed with himself, this exclusive invitation to a a banquet for three. But on his way home, he passes through the king's gate, and who should he see but Mordecai? And Mordecai still won't bow. Well, Haman gets so enraged that he goes home and, orders to have a 20-meter-high gallows be built. And uh, he's planning to kill Mordecai on it the next day. But that night, well, let's read about what happens that night. Chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who'd conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing's been done for him, the attendants answered. The king said, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he'd erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman's standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. And everything gets turned upside down for Haman. He'd come in to ask to have Mordecai hanged. But the king orders Haman to parade Mordecai through the city of Susa for his honor. The king orders Haman to honor Mordecai. And everything's turned upside down. And then a few hours later, it's time for the second banquet and you're starting to get the feeling that everything's not quite going to go so well for Haman. At that banquet, the king asks Esther again, what's your petition, Esther? What's your request? And she replies, grant me my life and spare my people. And this is what happens. Chapter 7, verse 5. Chapter 7, verse 5. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He'd made it for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. Haman's plans, once again, are completely reversed. And Mordecai is delivered. And friends, the deliverance continues. Because once again, Esther has the boldness to go before the king. Not once, but twice. And once again, the king holds forth the gold scepter. And this time she makes her request, the big request. She asks if the edict could be altered, the edict to have her people eradicated. And as a result, all the Jews in Persia, pretty well all the Jews in the world, are delivered, rescued from certain death by the acts of this one courageous woman. Well, that's more or less the Esther story, friends. Um, It occurs against the backdrop of this Persian power and might Haman makes it, hatches his plan to destroy God's people, and yet all those powerful plans are completely undone and reversed by one woman and her trusty cousin Mordecai. A woman who suddenly found herself put in a spot, a decision thrust into her lap. The woman Esther who steps up and speaks up and so delivers God's people. It's a good story. I encourage you to read it. Having um, worked through it, I'm kind of tempted to say, all right, friends, we need to step up and speak up for Jesus. And I will. I will say that later. But before that, I want to show how Esther's story fits into a bigger story, into God's story. Uh, so that's our second point tonight. Because strange as it may seem, Esther is actually—it's actually God's story. It's actually a story about God delivering his people, which is a little bit of a controversial thing to say. Um, If you know Esther, you'll know that God is not actually mentioned in Esther. So how could it be God's story? He's not mentioned once. It's kind of weird, given it's the Bible. But you know what, friends? I actually think that's, that's how Esther makes its point, by not mentioning God. I remember, I think it was year seven, in the concert band, uh, the conductor once said, um, you know, music isn't just about the sounds you make, the notes you play. It's also about the silences between the notes. The, the silence contributes as much as the sounds do. And that's certainly the case in Esther, friends. The silence speaks volumes. I think not using the word God speaks volumes about God. The first thing it tells us is it tells us how Esther feels and how we often feel. We feel like God's absent, like his name isn't in our life. You see, everything about life for Esther reminded her that she was in a foreign land. Xerxes was in charge. God had been defeated. He wasn't doing anything miraculous or grandiose. He just seemed distant, absent, perhaps like he does in your life. And so it's kind of appropriate that he isn't mentioned. But second, even though God seems distant, you can't help noticing his hand in the story of Esther as you read over it. Not in any miraculous way, but in all the chances and coincidences of the story. Like the choice of Esther as queen at just the right time. The fact that Mordecai happened to be just at the right time, at the right place at the king's gate, at just the right time to overhear the officers conspiring. The fact that the king couldn't sleep just the night before Mordecai was going to be hanged. And he got just the right book and opened it to just the right place to read about what Mordecai had done. The fact that the king came back out of his garden into the banqueting hall at just the right time to see Haman falling on Queen Esther, asking for mercy. The list goes on and on. And friends, it's those random events that actually add up to deliver God's people. Nothing miraculous happens in Esther. And yet God works through all these chances and moments, coincidences, to deliver his people. God doesn't do anything amazing in Esther. And that's why his name isn't mentioned. But friends, do you see how the silence speaks? Even when God seems absent, he is at work in all the chances of life to deliver his people. Do you reckon you could say that about your life? I've been really enjoying uh, getting to know people here at church. I'm only new but I've heard a lot of stories about how people became Christians. And they tell me, um, you know, about these things that happened. I I met this guy and he gave me this book and then I had a friend who called me up and invited me to the thing and, you know, and as they were in the moment, they didn't know that, you know, God was doing anything. But as they look back now as a Christian, they can see that God was using all those moments of their life to bring that bring them to himself, to actually deliver them from sin. I wonder if that's true of your story too. That's certainly true of Esther's story. And you know, the, the Jewish people, they loved the story of Esther. They thought it was terrific. We, we don't make much of it, but they loved it. So much so that they had an annual festival to remember this story. Um, they called that festival Purim. Remember that word I got you to remember? Purim? The The lots? It basically means chances. The Jews loved to remember the story of Esther because it reminded them that their God was God of the Purim. He's God of the the chances, the, the happenings, the coincidences. And he controls those things for the deliverance of his people. And friends, that is our God. He is our God, the God of the Purim, the God of the chances. And he has delivered us. In Jesus, Jesus, our, our great Esther, the one who has delivered us from certain destruction, from sin and Satan, and from the power of evil that tries to strangle our world. We've been delivered, friends, through Jesus, from all of those things. And now, that same God that was at work in Esther's story continues to work in our stories, through all the moments of our lives, to deliver us. And that might sound a little bit strange. You might think, well, he's delivered me already. I'm a Christian. I'm delivered. Um, I think God's at work to do more than that. Um, He wants to deliver you from the power of sin completely. I I often think of sin and its power as being a little bit like, um, you know, there's like a giant squid wrapped around a boat. You know, there's like old movies and things where you see that kind of thing, sort of. People, not, not very much. Well, apparently, that's what happened, right? Um, maybe. But I think that that's a little bit like sin in our world. It, it kind of gets its tentacles into every part of our world and tries to destroy our lives. And yet, as Christians, we believe that Jesus has killed the squid. It's dead. Yet, even though it's dead, its tentacles are still kind of wrapped around us. We still feel the effects of sin and evil in our lives and in our world. Friends, in all things, God works to pull those tentacles off. To free us from sin. To deliver us from evil. To make us like Jesus. The man who was fully free from sin. If you're not a Christian here tonight, you might think that sounds a bit strange. But that's what we believe. God is at work in his people to make them like Jesus. If you want to be free from sin... Come to Jesus. But brothers and sisters, some of you here tonight might feel a bit like Esther. You might feel a bit like God is absent. I've certainly felt that way in the past. You might feel like other forces control your life, your boss, your health, your age, whatever it might be. But Esther reminds us that God has not stopped working in our lives. Esther reminds us that he works in all the chances and coincidences of our lives, all all the moments, even the things we don't notice, for our deliverance. And friends, he's not going to stop working until he has completely delivered us, completely set us free and transformed us. That's the God we have. So take comfort. Take comfort in that. Well, friends, having, having taken our step back and looked at God's story, I want to move to our third point and move back to Esther's story once again. Um, because as much as it's God's story, God actually draws Esther into his story and makes her a character in his story. And you've got to admit, she, she did pretty well, didn't she? Do you reckon? It was pretty dangerous, what she did. But she's just, she just went for it. If I perish, I perish. But she just steps up to the challenge. She steps up and speaks up for the deliverance of her people. And I just want to look at that passage one last time, that that great little speech from from Mordecai in chapter 4, verse 12. I just want to notice one thing there. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Don't you worry, Esther. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. You see, Mordecai is completely convinced of our first point. God will deliver his people, whether you're involved or not, Esther. But that doesn't mean Esther does nothing. Oh, God's going to work. If it's me or not, it doesn't matter. Fine, I won't do anything. No, it's actually totally the opposite. You see what Mordecai does with that news? He says, Esther, God has been at work in all the chances of your life to bring you to the place you are now, the queen. You're in a place where you can do something. You can be involved in God's deliverance. So are you going to step up? Are you going to speak up? Well, after much prayer, Esther trusts the God who delivers, and she does it. She does very well, and she became involved in God's great deliverance. So friends, what about you? How has God worked in your life, through all the chances and coincidences of life, to bring you to a place where you might be involved in delivering people? What position has God given you at this moment? Uh, Some of you probably have significant positions of influence in work or family or friendship circles. I encourage you to use those positions. But God has actually brought each of us to just the place we're in now. Each of us. So what opportunities has he given you right now to step up and speak out to actually be involved in his delivering work. I don't think any of us are actually about to, you know, deliver all of God's people from certain destruction like Esther. Um, That's actually Jesus' work. Jesus is our great Esther who delivers his people. But if you step up and speak up about Jesus, you may well be involved in delivering some people. What an honor. Or we can speak up about other things as well. We could, say, speak up for our suffering brothers and sisters. There's plenty of countries around the world with unofficial edicts to annihilate God's people. I think a little website's going to pop up there, for Voice of the Martyrs. If, you, if that's something that burdens you, why not get involved? Use these guys to help you step up and speak up. Or you might just want to speak up about evil in the world. I said before that God's at work to pull back the tentacles of evil in our world. Friends, he invites us to be part of that. To step up and speak up about evil in the world. So what's he put before you? What position has he put you in to do that? My um, friend Mark uh, was in a workplace where the culture was to go to a, a strip club after any meeting that was off-site. He stepped up and spoke up, and the culture was changed. Um, And it was a real blessing to many people, many wives particularly. Uh, My brother um, stepped up and spoke up about a similar thing in his workplace, and he was asked to get another job. Um, It can be dangerous doing this, um, but significant things often are dangerous. What has God put before you? What has he put on your heart? Friends, please uh, don't hear this as a command. You You must step up and speak up. It's not. It's an invitation. Like Mordecai said, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will come from another place. But what an invitation, hey? What an invitation to be involved in something significant and real. It's an invitation to be involved in what The creator of our world is doing through his son and in his spirit. I won't lie to you. Uh, It can be dangerous doing this sort of thing. It certainly was for Esther. You might lose face, reputation, friends, family, a job. But brothers and sisters, we can step up and speak up with real confidence, because we know the God who delivers, the God who was at work in all the little moments of our lives to deliver us. We've seen him do that in Jesus, our great Esther, Jesus who set us free from certain destruction, Jesus who overturned the edict so that we, God's people, could be delivered and could approach the throne with absolute boldness, not, not the throne of some puny king like Xerxes in his puny Persian empire. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence, the throne of heaven. We can call the God of the universe our Father. What a joy. For he is the one at work delivering us in all the moments of all our days. So let's step up and speak up for him. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, you have done everything for us. You are so good to us, so lost without you, and yet your son came. You loved us. You've given us your spirit. You've delivered us from the grip of sin and Satan and death, and you're still at work. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your work in Esther's life, in Jesus, in our lives. We thank you that you're still at work in us. We pray, please, that you'd strengthen us to be your hands and feet in this world, bringing deliverance to others. We ask this for your glory's sake. Amen.